Welcome to the Dislocation Podcast, where we discuss innovation in real estate. My name is David Friedlander. I am Dror Pollig. And this week, we are going to discuss about the stories that both David and I found interesting. Uh, what have you seen this week, David? So interesting is a, 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 a funny word. One of the, the big things that stuck out for me was uh, a study that I ran across by the Union of Concerned Scientists, which estimated some of the uh, impacts of um, climate change or global warming, if you will, on the real estate market, um, mm -hmm. so, uh, both in terms of uh, you know property damage and then also you know just uh, dollar amounts. Uh, the other one was. Um, I was in Miami last week, and I got to talk to um, I got to talk to uh, someone over at uh, uh, Pro Property Markets Group uh, (PMG) and their mm -hmm. new brand of um, they're not calling it co-living, they're calling it social living, but it's uh, it, large-scale projects uh, of sh uh, shared living uh, called PMGX, and uh, and then somewhat on a related topic, uh, Harvard just released their state of the nation's housing. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a little uh, crossover there. Uh, so that's what I've got on my plate. And how about you? So I've found interesting. So Breather, a flexible space operator, just raised $45 million from some interesting investors. Uh, Metaprop, a VC fund focused on real estate technology, raised $40 million from some interesting investors with with. I'd say interesting implications for the industry from both of these. And uh, if we'll have time, I, there's an, a report by ING about how prop tech, so real estate technology, will have will impact traditional landlords, which I found uh, interesting and didn't necessarily agree with a lot of their conclusions. And uh, finally, some stuff that Alibaba have been doing with uh, offline retailers over in China, if we'll have time to to go over that. But let's start with you. Tell us about that uh, that global warming slash housing study. Yeah, so the Union uh, of Concerned Scientists put out a research uh, report, and then there's also an interactive map that cross-references their findings with uh, Zillow uh, data, uh, Zillow housing data. And they looked at the potential impact of of climate change uh, based on current projections uh, put out by NOAA, the National uh, Oceanic and Atmospheric um, uh, Administration. So, which which basically says that we're going to be looking at about six point six and a half feet of sea level rise by 2100. So they looked at- Six and a half feet, miles, Six and a half meters? feet. Yeah, yeah, not, oh, okay. not meters. <laughs> um, so they, they looked at two time spans. One was uh, 2045, which is basically the termination of a 30-year mortgage uh, at this point. Mm -hmm. And then they also looked at, 20, um, at 2100. And what they found was that by 2045, they're expecting 311,000 homes to be chronically inundated. Um, and chronically inundated, inundated by their measure is being flooded um, once every two weeks. Um, wow, and that's mostly Florida, Texas. Florida is definitely the epicenter of of the activity. Um, you know, mostly East Coast, 
Um, it was interesting mm-hmm. to look at the regions that were most affected. You know, the kind of the big, the big cities like New York, um, with the exception of kind of outer Brooklyn, um, San Francisco, mm-hmm. L.A. They they seem to you know they're going to be affected, but it's not going to be like major. But but um, Florida was definitely you know is going to have some some really major impact. And, um, but then, you know, then it had the, the, uh, the 2100, um, figure, which basically almost, almost no one is unscathed, uh, uh, New York, San Francisco, LA, um, you know, every, everyone along the, the Eastern seaboard, um, you know, Boston, um, and, you know, kind of every you know, every kind of minor city in between. So the the, the twenty one hundred the year twenty one hundred so that's the longer term projection, yeah. the shorter term projection with the three hundred and eleven thousand houses being affected is for which year? That's for twenty forty five. Okay, so, that's not too far away. Yeah, exactly. So, um, what were they projecting for where we are now, if if at all previously? I'm not sure if it included. Uh, I mean, like, what are the current l- levels of inundation? No, I mean, if there was a similar report like 10 or 15 or 25 years ago, it would be interesting to look at it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they had the historical data for that. Okay. Well, that definitely sounds a cause for a concern. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely precipitates a number of, uh, you know, uh, it, has, it has a number of implications. I mean, one is like we need to reduce our levels of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, just mm-hmm. on a on a on a global scale, but then you know, in terms of real estate, it's going to you know have have a major impact on you know, how buildings are underwritten. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's going in, insurance, I guess, and uh, totally, uh, but also just you know construction loans or you know just being able to to uh, finance a building in the first place if uh, you know if it is at risk of you know this chronic inundation um and you know 30 years is not you know in the, in the real estate world is not a very long time uh Absolutely. so and you know uh, increased interest in resilient technology making billion buildings resilient to 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 these impacts um resilient infrastructure because i mean we're just talking about the buildings themselves but but there's huge implications for uh you know transit and um you know little things like sidewalks and like how are you going to get around if, if your city is flooded um, <laughs> yeah. and and then you know looking and then climate speculation um you know it, it, in the guardian article they mentioned that places like uh wyoming and uh what was the other one um uh arizona uh, although so everyone's going to move there yeah i, I mean I, I i hazard to 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 say that that's the that's the outcome because you know some of those places have their own issues with with drought. Um, so mm-hmm. you know I, I I think there might be climate speculation uh, and and certainly markets that are currently unattractive because they're not on the coast because uh, you know they're not they're not hubs mm-hmm. uh, might become far more attractive. Um, you know in Denver. So should I buy land in Arizona or in North Korea? Which would you well, say is a better bet? Well, I, uh, Seattle's actually my, my bet. Um, even in 2100, Seattle seemed to have uh, to 
be spared from some of the the, the major impact. So, uh, uh, you know, it just has has natural protections. Uh, assuming a big volcano doesn't uh, level the city. Oh, I, I hear some bigger. cars honking in the background. I don't know if it's you or me, but maybe people are already trying to uh, nope. to escape out of the city. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that that's an interesting study again would be interesting to yeah. look at it in in detail um so interestingly i i was actually in miami last week uh for a, mm -hmm. a conference called the future of real estate which uh, is a tiny bit of irony there um but uh <laughs> i future of real estate I, elsewhere yeah <laughs> exactly um but i i um i've been keeping tabs on a project called uh, PMGX. It's a, uh, it's, they're not calling it co-living just because they don't want the associations with, with kind of the, the dormitory. Cause every, every article about co-living, you know, is somehow like a, a dorms for adults mm -hmm. and, you know, they wanted to get away from, from that connotation. But so PMG is a, is a, is a big, uh, I think they've got like, you know, 80, 80 buildings under, under management and, you know, just billions of dollars of, of, um, of properties built, they have launched a sub-brand called uh, PMGX, which is, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, is co-living, except they're not focusing on, uh, they're not focusing on, uh, well, basically, they're not focusing on New York and, and San Francisco and LA. They're going for, you know, kind of a minus B plus markets like Chicago, Denver, Miami, and uh, you know these guys. They're I think they're bringing somewhere on the you know they're bringing like over a thousand units on. Uh, I think actually it might even be more than that. Um, they're bringing thousands of units. I mean, just in in the near term, uh, they're opening mm -hmm. up this X Miami, uh, which has four hundred sixty four units uh, as of uh, July first, and then they have X Chicago, which has ninety nine units, but they also have a bunch of uh, other big projects going up in Denver, and they're offering um, everything is they're offering individual leases on uh, multi bedroom units uh, for like you know two and three bedroom units. You can get a lease, and it's fully furnished. And has you know enormous amenities, and it's uh, you know it's essentially a luxury building, but you know the entry price is around uh, thirteen hundred dollars. Um, and I talked to um, uh, so Brian. the lease. Sorry, you said th like a three-bedroom apartment. You mean the price is per bedroom, like thirteen hundred? And that's, can I just get yeah, my own bedroom, yeah. or do you have to take the whole apartment? Thirteen hundred dollars is the, the per bedroom cost. Okay, and I don't need to you know, take the risk of filling the other rooms or coordinating who else is going to live there or exactly. In fact, in you could even, okay. you, could, you could theoretically be the first person in the three bedroom and have a, a three bedroom all to yourself for, you know, for, for $1,300. And uh, do I have a say on who else is going to live with me in my apartment or I, I believe there's a certain level of chance there, but they're, they are trying to, you know, match people up appropriately. Um, and I mean, certainly I'm, I'm sure you can get together a, a band of friends and, and move in there. Sure. Um, so yeah, I was, so uh, basically co co living is continuing to, uh, to go mainstream. So, I mean, I think we mentioned PMG already in our first podcast, what was it a year ago or so, or first or second, when we focused only on co living. 
But I think then they were just kind of making their first steps in this direction. And now you're saying they're going to roll out, what, like a thousand apartments. That's pretty, pretty major for a traditional yeah. real estate well, I mean, operator to, uh, yeah. to embrace the concept so uh, fully. Yeah, I think the numbers are even are even higher than that. So, um, you know, like uh, thousands of units. Um, That's impressive. Yeah, It'll be interesting to see how they how they go about how they. And it's do. also moving a little bit away from the you know just the kind of the the master lease model, which you know mm -hmm. is basically the co living operator takes over the takes over the you know takes over one lease of the building, and and you know and charges a premium for their kind of for their special sauce. So you know these guys are are building their own building and operating their own buildings. Yeah. Well, it would be interesting to, to follow. Yeah. And they actually, the number I got is, you know, it could, could be as many as like 10,000 units in the next five, seven years. Wow. Um, and, you know, lastly, uh, just touching on uh, this last week, Harvard Joint Center for uh, Housing Studies released their uh, the state of the nation's housing. And mm -hmm. basically, things are predictably Green. bleak. Yeah. Um, since 2000, homes have appreciated 67% in the top uh, 10 metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. uh, cheap homes, uh, those selling for 75% of the median price are appreciating at twice the rate of high-end homes. And, you know, it's kind of related to the, to the PMG, uh, basically. Yeah, so lack of supply in the middle of the market, let's say. Yeah. And in particular in the cities, you know, the, the, the kind of developer bread and butter has been the luxury, you know, two, three bedroom, you know, renting, you know, two bedroom renting for five, six thousand um, mm -hmm. dollars. They, you know, they, what do they find that uh, almost half the apartments built in 2016 were in large buildings of more than 50 units, nearly nine out of 10 had swimming pools. Um, so, wow. you know, is a, a big mismatch between what people need and, and, and what, what's being built. And, uh, I'm not saying that, you know, the, the PMGX thing is like, is affordable, but it, it does show that it does show that, you know, a big developer can start thinking like how to, how to mark, move down market and still work within existing market conditions. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I would wager to say that probably one of the reasons they ran up market was to escape the regulation that exists on, you know, affordable, yeah. stabilized, etc. So to stay as far away from that as possible. And uh, in a way, the luxury market is the only free market for for residential in a lot of cities. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that, so much of that is tied in also with regulation and with construction costs, which are basically at a at all time high. And a lot of times the luxury mm -hmm. products are easier to bury the, you know, the, the, the impact of regulation and the costs of, of construction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And regulation means like pulling permits, exactly. getting everything ready, et cetera. A lot of stuff that is government dependent and kind of yeah, I, wasteful actually, in terms of time. I ran across an interesting piece in, um, on Curbed about a, uh, I don't know, it's like a five-story building in San Francisco and they've basically it's the project has been caught up for like two or three years. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and there's a, a nonprofit that's been built to, to, to oppose the building because they want to preserve a 90 year old, uh, quote unquote, historic laundromat. 
Um, it's a you know a single story. Oh, I've building. seen that. Yeah, I have seen that. Yeah. And it's not like a very beautiful building or anything that seems like it should be preserved, right? Exactly. And and this guy and this developer has been has been caught up uh, for for years now, I believe. Uh, and just like you know, he's just trying to get this kind of run of the mill, you know, apartment building up. And he's just and and I and there was a there was some sort of community board meeting the other day. And basically, they they voted to do more more uh, research on on the impact of the building. Uh, so he's he's actually the developer. I don't know his name off the top of my head, but he's, he's threatening to, to to sue the city uh, for you know for their obstructionist policies. That should be fun to watch. So I'll so I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. What do you got? Well, on my side of the world uh, or of the table. So as I mentioned, Breather, which is, uh, I think, uh, a, a popular popular company on our podcasts, yeah. uh, they operate uh, flexible kind of on-demand meeting spaces or uh, workspaces uh, and across large cities. So places like London, New York, very dense kind of cities. And they allow you to book the space on-demand by the hour, by the day, sometimes by the month. And the spaces are very nicely designed. They're accessed really conveniently through an app. So you book it on the app and then you just get a like a, a code that you go and you tap into a door and the door opens up and, you know, the space is yours for, for as long as you booked it for. And uh, Breather already previously raised substantial uh, amounts of money, I think somewhere around 70 or $80 million from some major investors, including Peter Thiel. But what is interesting is that last week they raised another $45 million U.S., uh, from two very, very large institutional investors. One is called Temasek, which is basically the Singapore government's uh, investment corporation, one of the two that the Singapore government has. And the other one is uh, Caisse de Depot, which is the one of the largest Canadian pension fund managers, uh, abbreviated CDP, CDPQ. Caisse de Depot, the Placement de Québec, I think is the full name. And... Uh, and the interesting thing here is that we see like two very, very big, very conservative, very traditional institutional investors that own a lot of real estate themselves or are exposed to a lot of real estate uh, suddenly invest in like a very innovative, flexible space operator, um, and uh, which which I think can benefit their own portfolios and also shows that. Uh, these type of institutional investors are getting more and more of an appetite to to experiment and to open up. So they're not just investing in kind of traditional co-working or or uh, furnished office operators like Convene do you, or, do you or think, the office I mean, group or WeWork. Do you think it's becoming Sorry? less experimental or like, you know, I mean, kind of like bring up Breather as a, as a you know, kind of a innovative solution to on-demand office spaces but like might it be that they're that they they've matured enough to the point where these these institutional lenders are seeing it as less of a risky investment yeah i guess it's a, it's a bit of both it means that it seems less risky to them and also i would say the fact that they invest in it makes it less risky but if in the first wave we saw you know companies like blackstone which are to begin with a more adventurous investor mm -hmm. uh, acquiring or investing in a company like the Office Group, which is kind of a WeWork competitor, but also at the end of the day, they operate office space for relatively long leases with relatively large tenants. Uh, 
Uh, so both the, the, the investor is a little more open-minded and the, the operator that they invest in is not so far from a traditional office operator. Here we see on both sides, both like very, very conservative in, investors that you wouldn't expect to see in this game so early. And on the other side, they're investing in a company that really operates space for extremely short term, a very distributed portfolio uh, with much more technology at its core, I would say, because it's all built around this app that really manages the inventory really well. Uh, and uh, with, with kind of very high velocity of, of churn, you know, people just moving in and out all day and stuff is moving. Uh, so so it's interesting how, how quickly these two worlds are kind of conservative uh, institutional money and the kind of adventurous and uh, new flexible space operators that again are very driven by design and technology uh, are finding uh, finding common ground and, and i would say it's not great news for traditional yeah, uh, landlords or real estate companies that that are kind of in the middle and uh they assume that they are kind of big enough and they don't have to worry about companies like breather mm-hmm. but suddenly these companies can go directly to larger investors and you know get their backing and i'd say things can get can get pretty interesting well this i mean this might be a dumb um, question but what is this a investment in tech or is this an investment in real estate hmm. I, I would say this is an investment in uh, in technology design sensibilities uh data-driven decision-making capabilities reader doesn't digital. own any, any assets i mean whatsoever. no Rita doesn't own any assets, but it has a lot of capabilities that I think would be very relevant for for larger portfolios and even for, uh, you know, larger spaces and longer term tenants. I mean, they have like their own very, very specialized design team. They have their data team and they kind of, you know, the the pricing engines on, you know, how to how should you price uh, a room of uh, 200 square feet in downtown Brooklyn at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. Right. Uh, so they they can answer that question. I think most real estate companies don't really think in that level of right. granularity. I mean, you know, smart, they know more or less. Place. Okay, I'm going to sign. Yeah, I'm going to sign a five year lease. This is how much. Right. It should cost, <laughs> and you know, let's okay. now let's negotiate. Uh, and uh, and they also have the tools that allow you to kind of complete that transaction within a few seconds, and you know, and to get the door to open, and to get someone to to clean it up and take care of it once you leave. So I mean, it's a lot of. It's a lot of and, and to coordinate all of that behind the scenes as well, which involves technology, I would assume, also. Well, this, so a lot I mean, of stuff that, this bolsters your kind of idea that things will get increasingly supplier agnostic. Um, like Breather again controls the uh, controls the user. Yeah, that th- th- I mean that the assets themselves will have less value, right? Uh, in a way that the assets will depend on their operator more. So in the office world and in the residential world, just like in the hotel world, they already are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, once you put a building under a brand and under the marketing umbrella of, you know, uh, a Starwood, then suddenly the building itself is worth more. But if you just put it under, you know, a drawer in David's management and immediately it's worth less, even if it's the same building with the same bones in the same location. Uh, and now we're starting to see that in the office world. And the second thing which also involves a lot of money from from real estate companies. And maybe that's how some of the real estate companies that are in the middle, that are not huge uh, sovereign wealth funds or institutional pension managers, are responding. So Metaprop, which is a venture capital fund focused on prop tech, on real estate technology based in New York, 
uh, just closed a new fund. So they raised $40 million for their new fund. And their investors or LPs include companies such as uh, Prudential, so PGIM, which is kind of the investment manager slash real estate manager for Prudential, uh, RxR Realty, which is a big uh, office space operator focused mostly on New York or even exclusively on New York. I think they, they run about 70 uh, kind of prized office buildings in the city. And also all of, I guess, the three largest real estate services and brokerages companies, CBRE, Cushman and Wakefield, and JLL, which invested via its own venture capital fund, which is focused on real estate tech called yeah. JLL Spark. Those are some huge names. Um, yeah, these are huge names. And and a few interesting things here. I mean, first, I mean, you see, so th- these are huge names, but they're a little less huge than the ones that we mentioned with Breather. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I guess the kind of more traditional real estate companies, the way they're trying to innovate, I mean, they invest in venture capital funds, which I think is, is nice and it's good that they're doing it. Uh, but I don't know how willing they are yet to really change their own businesses. I mean, you know, it, it's pretty easy, even though it involves money, you know, to say, okay, we're... Uh, $20 billion company, we're just going to put two or $5 million into a fund and, you know, it's all good. Like we're innovating. Uh, but ultimately they will have to really, you know, look into their own business and reinvent a lot of things in there and rethink, you know, their service offering and even the type of people that they hire and what kind of capabilities that they need to have. Uh, and, and I think most of them are not really ready to make that, that jump. So, but, but it's good that they have somewhere to start. Uh, Another interesting thing here, and, and I guess it relates to my previous point, is that a lot of them are seeing these type of investments as strategic investments. So they're saying, you know, we're not just investing in order to make money, you know, to, to find like an amazing startup and make tons of money when it exits, but we're actually investing in technologies and tools that are relevant for our business, uh, which is fair and, and is true as well. But then when you have CBRE and Cushman and Wakefield and JLL, which are kind of competitors in the real world investing in the same stuff, then it's hard to see how they're going to get a competitive advantage out of that. I mean, obviously, they're going to get an education and they're going to, you know, meet more people, but ultimately, they'll have to start investing directly in, in well, separate I mean, things. Well, it might be less about... Which they are. Not having... A, less about a competitive advantage as not being left in the dust. Yeah, so yeah, definitely there's a defensive component... And kind of a, yeah, like a me too without the hashtag uh, component. And and, and again, it's good that it's doing it. And I think all three of them, definitely CBRE and JLL already, uh, are also investing directly in in some technology companies that that impact only them and, you know, that that their competitors don't invest in. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but, but generally it's, it's a lot of money, and maybe maybe the main concern in the kind of prop tech world is if there are enough companies to invest in. I mean, there's a lot of money coming up, which is great, uh, but now we need more entrepreneurs to step up and really, you know, tackle more of the issues in this industry. Um, and uh, do do you know what the what the fund is focused on? Like, what level of fund? You know, what what are they? You know, doing seed seed rounds or you know. Uh, from my understanding, so they're going to continue along the original lines of Metaprop, which is like very early stage. I mean, mm-hmm. as early as 
as it gets, but they can also come in a little later. But I think with so much money, they, they'll probably need to invest also in slightly later rounds. Yeah. And uh, probably a, a, a chunk of it is allocated to kind of follow on rounds. So, you know, if they invest in a company very early and then that company keeps raising money, they can keep participating in later rounds and really uh, avoid being diluted and kind of double down on their best investments, yeah. um, which is, you know, common practice for, for venture capital funds. Um, Another thing I think I would uh, I think is interesting to consider and, and, and to look at in, in the kind of prop tech venture world is that a lot of these companies that are being created, I think even the successful ones, most of their exits will probably be kind of strategic exits, which means that companies in the industry will, will acquire them uh, at a relatively early stage in order to incorporate them into their business, which means that there will be exits, but maybe the exits will not be, you know, 100x. I mean, we'll, we'll see very few companies that, you know, reach like, you know, even a billion dollars, let alone 10 or 50. Uh, and because because they will be acquired by people like CBRE and JLL and others uh, much earlier, which means that the venture returns themselves might not be as high as in kind of traditional venture capital funds. Yeah. Uh which I mean, Metaprop, means that these does Metaprop do sort of? Uh, I mean, they're they're. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they're pretty active in terms of their investments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, did, did they even have like a an accelerator program? Do they not? They do. I think they have an accelerator program with Columbia University and maybe a few other institutions. Right. And I think it also in, in more than one city. It's in New York, and I think they have some affiliates in Europe, in uh, in London, and maybe Paris. Uh, and they do a lot of investments. I mean, when you're an early stage investor, you have to make a lot of bets for 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 the model to make sense. I mean, uh, it's it's in large part a numbers game. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I mean, they're doing great work. It's great to see them, you know, growing and evolving and raising more money and bringing on board more, you know, quality investors. And uh, we'll we'll continue to follow them with uh, with great interest. Cool. Uh, the last, the last couple of things. I'm just going to run through them quickly because we, we we have a long podcast here, and I also hope people hear us well because we're both kind of on the road and using a makeshift setup this week. Uh, but there was a report by ING about the the impact on of prop tech uh, on the industry. I think it was published like a week or two ago, and uh, it's quite interesting. They summarize a lot of points, but they make one one kind of conclusion, which I I really have to take exception to, and I think it's probably a, a, a conclusion that many people share. Uh, so, I mean, they say that, I mean, using more technology or the emergence of more technology and tools is going to make the real estate world, I mean, obviously more transparent, things will be run more efficiently, uh, pricing will be easier to discern and faster. And uh, their conclusion from that is that it will have like a great positive effect on, on owners because, you know, it would make their business better and then they could actually make more money because, you know, everything will, you know, technology will make everything easier and faster and cheaper and more efficient. Uh, but uh, but one thing that they don't take into account is how these new tools and technologies are facilitating the emergence of new types of competitors that actually know how to use these tools and invest in these tools and, you know, are kind of digitally native. Uh, like they're their conclusion basically assumes that as soon as these tools uh, emerge and all of the old landlords will know how to use them in an amazing way. And, you know, uh, and 
based on what we've seen so far, this doesn't seem to be the case. It's a bit like saying that, you know, uh, there's mobile apps and mobile payments and, and, and mobile maps and self-driving cars are coming. So the taxi companies are going to have a great time because they're going to cut costs and, you know, everything is going to be simple. Uh, but what we saw in reality is that these technologies actually facilitated the emergence of companies like Uber that just come along and reinvent the whole business model for the taxi industry and kind of eat their lunch and then their breakfast and then, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, the, my, my mind kind of goes to everything basically being swallowed up by a couple large companies that, that have the, you know, have the right tech. Um, you know, I, I'm just kind of thinking of like invitation homes or something like that, uh, where, you know, they swallow up huge market segments because they, mm -hmm. they can run large portfolios with such efficiency. Yeah, and invitation homes is like, you know, Blackstone backed. I mean, Blackstone is definitely on the level and they can acquire technologies and hire amazing people to to make good use of the best tools that are out there. And but most real estate landlords are not really in that position. Right. Uh, and, and to kind of bring it back to where we started this conversation. So you see operators like Breather and like Convene and like WeWork uh, that are, you know, run by people that are not necessarily traditional real estate people, people that have background in software and in entrepreneurship and in design and, uh, you know, and, and even like consumer products of various kinds. And they, you know, come along and they show up and they use all these amazing tools and they build their own tools and then they kind of start manage, managing their own assets and then they build relationships with institutional investors and maybe even own their own assets partly or at least drive the drive the their investors to own assets that they want to use. Uh, so definitely these type of new landlords are having a great time with technology, but the old landlords, I'm not sure uh, how well they will do, especially if they're unwilling to really start making some serious moves. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. And uh, I guess on that uh, optimistic note, we can, <laughs> uh, we can end it here today. Great. Well, Thanks for listening to the Dislocation podcast. And uh, I should mention that we're going to have an event in July, on July 18th. Uh, it's shaping up really great. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll keep you posted on that, on the Dislocation uh, website, on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes. Yeah, looking forward to that. So that's it for today. I'm Dora Poleg. I'm David Freeletter. Thank you for listening. Thanks.